Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first The Race MotoGP podcast of 2022. I'm not Toby Moody, as you'll have already noticed. He's out on the Dakar rally right now, so this is Matt Beer standing in and aiming to be at least as impressive a MotoGP sub as Christoph Ponson was for Vintia Ducati. Your other regulars, Simon Patterson and Valentin Horinci, have resisted the temptation of following Danilo Petrucci out to the desert, and they're here to chat. Simon, you lot, you might actually be in a house rather than a van outside Alicia Spargo's house today. <laughs> I actually am in a house, um, rare, but it's mainly because the old van is sold and the new van is sitting outside in a very much to be constructed state at the minute because um, COVID lockdown, Northern Ireland, shipping difficulties, etc., etc., etc. I mean, we're slightly behind schedule. All good. So there's a lower danger of MotoGP riders walking past your window than the last time I turned up to one of these podcasts. Slightly lower, okay. slightly lower, but you can never be too sure. We have a very high ratio of, of motorcycle racers. I was going to say, someone from the road racing community <laughs> might turn up, but maybe not in a Spargo. And Val, how is Moscow? Um, <clears throat> wow. Couldn't, couldn't even couldn't even do the first word of our first podcast of the year. That's a great start. Moscow is fine. Apparently, it's so fine that I can't talk anymore. And also, you know what? You mentioning Ponson did make me remember that MotoGP has the 105% rule now instead of the 107% rule. So you are in trouble. <laughs> okay, so as this is our first podcast of 2022, we thought it would be logical to start by previewing the 2023 season which absolutely is not a verbal typo. I'm sure I'll be putting in plenty of those, but that, that one was deliberate. So MotoGP has a habit of very early silly seasons in recent years, and this could be an epic one as the majority of the grid are out of contracts during this season. So by the time the 2022 racing season actually starts in Qatar, some massive names could have completely different employers for 2023. And two of those massive names are our last two champions. So the current champion seems like a good place to start. Simon, Fabio Quattararo celebrated winning the title by having a really underwhelming rest of 2021 and then slating the 2022 Yamaha in testing. So what's your expectation for his contract talks? Is, is he really likely to walk out on the team that's got him to this point? I think a lot of what we've heard from Fabio so far uh, sounds very much like someone who's negotiating a pay raise for 2023 rather than someone that's seriously considering leaving their team for 2023. Um I, I absolutely see him as being someone that will leave Yamaha at some point and try to win for another manufacturer, try to do the, the Valentino Rossi, Jorge Lorenzo. But I think it won't come until he has two or three more championships under his belt, until he has a bit more money in the bank, until things are a bit more stable for him. Um, You know, just even from purely financial terms, it's worth remembering he's only been a factory rider for a year. Um, he's not put that much money in the bank. He's young. He's smart. He's surrounded by intelligent people who will be telling him that, you know, you need a pension fund to survive after you retire at 30 years old. Um, I'm sure he didn't get a lot of money his first year in MotoGP coming in the way he did as like the sixth choice for Petronas Yamaha um, after everyone else had said no to them and they picked the kid from Moto2 that no one wanted. Um, so, you know, from from those terms, he's going to stay where he is, I think. And the other thing is the bikes. Sure, the bike isn't exactly what he wants it to be, but it is better. We we know that, you know, everything we've heard about the bike is that it is better now. And even if it isn't significantly better, the one big downside of the Yamaha seems to be its ability to overtake. And the only person who can overtake on a Yamaha is Quattararo. So 
I think that he's he's made more out of those technical issues than there is to be made out of them necessarily. And I, I really can't see him go anywhere. Yeah, I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a salary ploy or just a, a late season strop, but I think either way, I can't see it as being significant for 2023 in any way other than the actual salary negotiations. I don't think anybody's going to be willing to pay him as much as Yamaha because Yamaha is the the manufacturer that needs him the most. And I don't I don't see where else he could go. I don't like let's say even if you're disappointed with the end of year Yamaha last year, still probably a fairly decent assumption that it's the second best bike on the grid, right? I mean, we can do that. The one bike that looks uh, to have a bit something extra compared to it is the Ducati. Ducati have their pick of riders. They don't really need Fabio Quartararo. They can put Pecco and Jorge Martin on that bike for as long as they want. They don't need to stump up the kind of salary that luring over Fabio would probably require. And none of the other manufacturers just make much sense. Fabio to Suzuki? No. Fabio to Honda? No. Fabio to Aprilia or KTM? No, no. So I just I don't see... It's all well and good to say that you'll listen to all teams, but will he really listen to all teams? Like, you'll hear him out, but is he going to feel the Aprilia offers? Exactly what you've just said, Val. I was going to chip in with the same thing. Um, there are three teams in MotoGP that can afford him, realistically, because he knows his worth. Um, and and arguably there are three teams in MotoGP that can win championships, even if Suzuki did sneak one in uh, in 2020. And one of those teams he rides for, one of those teams has, for the first time in their history, an actual stacked rider lineup, which we'll come to a bit later in the form of Ducati. And then Honda just, I think he would be the latest in a long string of very, very, very foolish people if he went to Honda and think that the Honda would work for him because it, it wouldn't suit his style. Uh, and he It's way too early. Exactly, exactly. Maybe later in his career, but right yeah, now. Yeah, and maybe as that bike evolves a little bit with, with Paul Espargaro putting a little bit of input into it, um, the way that they haven't been doing under Marquez in previous years, maybe it'll turn into something different. But but right now, that's, that is a bike that would make him suffer, not win. Yeah, KTM can afford him, I think, but yeah. money's not going to be the problem there. No. It's just not proven. Exactly, exactly. If if they'd had the 2021 season we'd expected them to have, maybe we'd be having a very different discussion right now, but they had a much worse season than expected, and as a result, it, it, it changes everything. And, and that's the, the crazy thing about this super early rider market that we have in MotoGP. It might be that the 2022 KTM has fixed all of the problems that the 21 bike had, but you know, I, I spoke to someone senior in a team uh, this week, and he said that he expects that the, the top three or four guys in the world will be signed before the first race. So it doesn't matter how good your 2022 bike is when it comes to signing 2023 riders. And that is why this test in November was, was such an important one for Fabio to get his moan in quickly, I guess, really, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, just, it's very easy to get a bit disheartened when you see Ducati's one, two, four, five on the grid and lock out the podium. Yeah, it's 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 frightening. It's easy to be frightened by that. And I I, I believe that it, it ruffled Fabio's feathers, even though he was reigning champion. I, I believe it already got into his head a bit for, for the following year. But I don't 
I can't imagine there's enough dissatisfaction there to force a rift, especially because the alternatives just aren't there in my book. So as much as from a website point of view, I love the idea of uh, champions having friction with their teams and, and walking out on them. I think we're going to put on, on our spreadsheet of 2023, I'm going to put Quartararo staying put on a, on a monster Yamaha for at least another year. But what about the other champion with itchy feet? Joanne Mir. More likely to, to walk out or not? What do you guys reckon? Val, you go first with this one. Yeah, well, I wrote the, the column a few days ago basically outlining my my point of view that they've both said they're willing to to explore other options but i i don't see how that makes a ton of sense yeah in Mir's case it makes it makes more sense it, in, in Mir's case just because of the relative financial might of yamaha and suzuki and the relative seasons they've had i just i still don't i don't entirely see it i it's it's it feels like maybe a little bit too much of a punt for him to go to, I think Honda is the the obvious the obvious candidate for his signature if he does decide to go away from Suzuki. But it's it's a big roll of the dice um, for well for both now for Honda it's not a big roll of the dice if if they do capture him. But for 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 Mir it would be you know that's not a bike that a lot of people have mastered recently and as good as as Mir is. Uh, it would be a, a very, very big test. And given that he seems very happy with what, given that Suzuki has been working on the 22 bike for so long, given that he was happy with what he tested, and like the only the only way I'd see Murata Suzuki is if he tried to underbid Quartararo in getting the Yamaha ride for next year. But that's, I think that's pure fantasy. For me, he also stays. So yeah. I actually, I disagree. Um, I think that, wow. I know us disagreeing, Val. Who'd ever have thought it? Uh, I think that the, I think that the Mir to Honda story has legs. Um, I, I think that he has realized that Suzuki has not got the resources to develop a bike as quickly as he believes he needs them to. We, we saw that in 21 where they, they just weren't capable of bringing things um, you know, uh, even you just you just look at the bike compared to the Ducati. The Ducati looks like an X-wing fighter, and the Suzuki looks like Kevin Schwantz's <laughs> RGB five hundred. The the fairing is still so you know it, it's so basic um, aerodynamically, and and aerodynamics are both the most expensive area of MotoGP development and the, probably the most important right now, and and they can't compete there. So. He's looking at all these things. He's measuring up his options. Um, he's got to be thinking that the Honda deal would be interesting. Then you add to that the fact that his riding style is very, very Marc Marquez. If there's a rider in MotoGP that I think could jump in a Honda and very quickly adapt themselves to be fast on it, it is probably him more than... Paul Espargaro more than obviously Jorge Lorenzo more than a, a load of other people who've been there and tried it and and more than you know other people who you would never consider going there because of it and then the third thing that I think is you know it, it always comes back to this with Suzuki who sits down right now with with Juan Mir and negotiates a contract with him there's still no team manager. We're, we're on the verge of another season without a team manager. There's literally no one whose job it is is to put together the details for him. So, so you know, they risk losing him simply because there's no one there to ask him to stay. 
They probably have Guintoli drafting up the contract right now in between <laughs> test runs. He, he does everything else for them yeah. at the minute. Yeah. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So it's a good, it's a really good argument. I just the 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 fact that none of the moves between bikes are paying off really recently. Mir, I think in twenty two he will have in early twenty two. I think he'll see that he has a race winning bike. I don't think it'll be a, a title winning bike, but maybe he'll do it. You know, it, maybe it's a punt worth taking. Ultimately, if you've won one championship already, then you can you can afford to to risk. So I don't, I don't know, Matt. Put him on the, put him on the Honda on the spreadsheet if you like. <laughs> I, I'm going to switch him to Honda. But next question is, what circumstances is he joining Honda in? Because you know, for a lot of years, you're looking for a number two to Mark Marquez there when you when you're looking for your second rider. Obviously, Jorge Lorenzo wasn't signed on on that basis, but Danny Pedrosa was kept there for a lot of years, basically on that on that basis. So you're bringing in the man who succeeded Marquez as world champion with Marquez in quite a different position now. So how, how does, how does that dynamic work if Mir joins, joins Repsol? So I think we, we'd, we'd see some sort of a Yamaha two number one deal that, that would be written into Mir's contract if he came because Mark Marquez is not the Mark Marquez that he was four or five years ago. He's not the dominant force anymore. Don't get me wrong. He might be the dominant force in 2022, but he has to earn that right again. So until he does, um, I I think that, yeah, he, he, they have to at least extend an olive branch to whoever's on the other side of the garage, which it already sounds like they're doing whenever you listen to the way that they're now taking feedback from, from Paul into the bike, whenever traditionally the second rider was told to shut up and ride what Mark wants. Uh, there are, you know, the, the, there's signs that things are looking a bit different at Honda. Um, they, they learned a very bitter lesson in 2020 with putting all their eggs in one basket and, and losing it. Um, but then the other side of the, the coin is, you know, who knows what Mark Marquez's contract until the end of 2024 says about his status within the team. Who knows if he has the ability to, you know, to input into who his teammate is to always have number one status guaranteed. You, you don't know what's in that contract either. And that could actually affect whoever joins on the other side. They They need to see at least Qatar and maybe a few more races. Like if I'm Honda, I have to wait for the first few races of, of 2020 to see what shape Mark is in, because I think that massively informs how you approach your rider lineup for for the subsequent future. If Mark is, is good and, you know, if he's not like back to 2019 level, but if he's in contention for the championship, you're already spending absolutely exorbitant money to, to keep him around. You might as well resign Paul in the other seat. But if Mark is still struggling for fitness, then you have to you have to sort of grit your teeth and get the checkbook out once again for somebody like Mir. I'm assuming here that Mir is more expensive than than Paul. I I mean I don't know, but that would make sense to me as much as I like Paul, I I would pay Mir more and I imagine that Mir as a as a world champion will expect more. And obviously Honda has money but a lot of that money is already going towards a, a bumper four-year deal that's not even halfway done you know Val you say they need to have a couple of races to assess Mark's fitness they don't really have that option do they because on, on current form MotoGP everyone who they might sign as a kind of Marquez equal or or kind of number one replacement is going to be contracted by the I time think they I think I have the option because I think Mir can string Suzuki along for a bit I think he's earned that right if you remember when 
Vinales was picking between Yamaha and Suzuki. That didn't happen preseason. That happened during the season. I know that the market has shifted a little bit, but I still think that Mir is in a position to where he can make Suzuki wait a little bit on what he's going to do. And that would give Honda the chance to wait a little bit. There are some deals, you know, I'm not expecting to see much in the way of Maverick Vinales style Yamaha deals that happened in January, February at the, at the bike launch. I think there's going to be a couple. I think Pekko Bagnaia would make a ton of sense if he committed, if he went out at the launch and said, I signed a, a lifetime contract, I'm going to be here forever. But the rest of them, there's no there's no real huge incentive to, to jump the gun for anyone, I think. Yeah, we've traditionally seen that Honda are someone that moves a bit slower. Um, they, they're not someone that signs someone before the season starts so they will take their time to figure out where Marquez is to figure out where his rivals are to figure out where Paul is with the, the, the new bike and the changes they've made to give him a bit more feeling from it You know, let's not forget that he did sort of sign off the second half of last year with his best ever MotoGP result with that podium in Misano maybe they're, they are moving in the right direction for him and Honda aren't going to want to lose him uh, on top of that not only are Suzuki kind of at the beck and call of Mir to an extent, the fact that there's no manager at Suzuki right now also plays to Mir's cards in that regards. It gives him more time. But, you know, what we've also seen is that um, traditionally, if Suzuki, I, I think if Suzuki lose Mir, they won't hire another MotoGP yeah. rider to replace him because they've never done that. They'll go shopping for someone in Moto2. They'll pick a hot young talent and that gives them all the time in the world. That gives them until after the summer break to find a second yeah. rider. Kanet? Kanet would make some sense to me. Kanet is a... is a yeah, He would make a ton of sense. Yeah. But but there's others too. You know, if they could wrestle Ayagura out of a HRC contract, he's got real potential. There's yeah. lots of others that could very easily be slotted in there. And of course, that does raise the question of who's on the other Suzuki. Do they... Do they, for continuity's sake, keep faith of the guy who crashes in every other race and cycles into the back of a van? Or do they do a very un-Suzuki thing and have a complete fresh start? I think Rin stays because of the threat of losing Mir. Rins didn't bring anything in the way of results last season, but I think as a bike development guy, he's proven very, very useful. He's very much clearly helped Suzuki get out of its rut between the Vinales era and the Mir era. Rins was sort of the bridge in that. It wasn't it wasn't Andrea Yanoni who got blamed for the for the wrong engine choice basically. How, how much of that was actually and a lot okay. How much of that was actually Yanoni's fault, I guess we'll never truly find out, but the reputation is there that it's that it's Rins who who got them back on the on the development track. So he's a useful guy to have around ultimately uh and he's not going to be very expensive after the season that he's had so i I'd, I'd keep him uh, and in terms of of race wins he's suzuki's most successful rider since like kenny jr and, and there is a bit of loyalty in suzuki and, and they will appreciate that well this is this is a fair point actually as much as um rins does get a bit of mockery after last year is there an argument that was a bit of an anomaly? It wasn't like he was crashing that often or, or coming across that way with earlier in his career, was it? I mean, 20, 2020, he also had a few folds that shouldn't have been there. And I think earlier in his career, when he was just starting out at Suzuki, there was also some crash trouble. I think that part, they 
have to maybe it, it it can't be at this level, but they have to accept a bit of crashery. I think that's probably never going away. But he's not a bad rider. He's quick. If if he just he just needs the confidence back. I think. I think what you've got with Alex Rins is a rider who you know at the start of the season is probably not going to win a championship for you, but you know he'll win you loads of races and he'll make your bike faster. And that's not a bad thing for a team to have at all. Would so, mere leaving Suzuki help him, do you think? Oh, yeah, 100%. It will help him in that it will... I think if Mir leaves Suzuki, it will guarantee his place in the team. Yeah. I think that, that they cannot get rid of him at that point because they will have memories of what happened the last time they got rid of two riders and replaced them with him and Andrea Iannone and it turned into a disaster. So they're not going to do that. They're going to keep one of them. Uh, but I think that even just being the number one on the team would do his confidence a lot of good. You know, I, I, I'd be curious to see how him with a rookie alongside him would develop. And honestly, this might sound very daft, but if I'm Honda, I, you know, I ask. I ask Alex Rins, hey, can you come in, help our bike, crash it 500 times, and then... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, if there's anyone, if there's anyone in the world who's made an example out of crashing the bike five hundred times but still winning, yeah. it's Mark Marquez. So they'd be a good fit. Very true. Okay, I've put down Rins for Suzuki, Mir for Honda, and Aaron Kanner as a Suzuki teammate on the grounds that a team with no team boss won't have time to negotiate Ayagura out of an HRC contract. So, or Pedro Acosta out of a KTM. <laughs> oh, that's that's going to be an even bigger topic when we get down to KTM. Well, <laughs> You know, it's it's the F1 Toro Rosso style, except with your main team. Suzuki is willing to offer the trump card of a MotoGP promotion into a factory team. They've shown that again and again and again. They will do it to get their man. But yeah, I think Kanet. Kanet makes sense. So that's looked at two teams where we're, we've got dissatisfied riders and the expectation of movement. Let's go on to the team that ended last year dominating, Ducati, somewhere we're not expecting movement among the very top end with the uh, the number one rider from last season, but the rest of the lineup could have quite a shake up, couldn't it? There's some there's some ambitious people looking at Jack Miller's seat in particular. Yeah, it's it's Martin's the favorite for that, isn't it? I mean, it's just it's it's hard to see how he isn't. That doesn't mean he has it. That doesn't mean Miller's lost it. It's just you take their relative experience. You take you compare their performance in in twenty twenty one. Yes. Miller was quicker, but not not by enough over a rookie, I think. So right now, I, I can't imagine that Jorge Martins anywhere but the the pole position seat for that. And if he stays healthy through the season and just makes the step that you'd expect for a sophomore rider, doesn't have to be fighting for the title, really, but if he makes the step that you'd expect, I think the, think the ride is his. There's also the, the question of, I'm not entirely sure that the Ducati top brass has always been completely convinced by, by Jack Miller. There's there's that feeling, and it, it's a feeling that stems from the fact that there was the, oh, was it mid-2019 rumor that had some legs to it, that they were considering bringing Jorge Lorenzo back, extricating him from Honda, getting him back on a Pramac Ducati at, at Miller's expense, and apparently there was indeed something to that, and apparently, well, a- allegedly, there were some people at Ducati reasonably amenable to that, and that suggests to me that... He's expendable-ish. He's a very good rider, but if they have Martin, it's an it's an easy decision to take if it continues the way it was looking in in twenty twenty one. 
it has always felt like there's two camps within the Ducati team. That there's the the Claudio Domenicali, Gigi Deligna camp, and then there's the Davide Tardazzi, Paolo Tabati camp. And the the Tardazzi Tabati camp love Miller. The other camp aren't just sold on him, and the other camp at the end of the day are the ones that have the real influence and the real power. Um. So yeah, I I agree completely that Jack is. I I don't know if Jack's in a a particularly dangerous position because all of the moving and shaking I see at Ducati for next for 2023 I see happening internally and I think Jack losing his seat to Jorge Martin doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to lose his Ducati seat I can almost see them putting him back into Pramac now that they have an actual you know they've got eight bikes in the grid they don't need Pramac to be the youth development team anymore they can almost make Pramac the bike development team and and use Grissini and VR46 to bring up the young riders. And, and Jack can revert back to that role he had where he was the, you know, the on-track tester who got things six months before everyone else and made them work. And because he's good at that. Arguably he's better at that than he is at trying to win championships because he crashes too much. So I I wouldn't be surprised if he does remain a Ducati rider beyond 2022. But I would be very surprised if he remains a factory rider beyond 2022 whenever you've got Jorge Martin sitting there ready to step up. Um, in the next few days, uh, it's on the, the massive email you sent me this morning, Matt. Uh, there's a Jorge Martin interview <laughs> going up on the site and he says in it quite clearly that they tar- him and his management targeted a factory Ducati seat when they had all their offers on the table for where they were going to go post Moto2, that they had offers from every manufacturer, they ID'd where they wanted to be in sort of three or four years, and they've been working towards it. And that is, you know, that that's his goal. His goal is Jack yeah, C. The, my problem there is, is I'm I'm sure Ducati would quite like to help, uh, to keep Miller at Pramac, but feels like a really if that's what it comes down to, it feels like a really bitter and difficult pill to swallow for the rider. I think a move from the satellite team to the manufacturer team and then back to the satellite team being demoted, it's always, I think, basically such a difficult one to accept, if, if that makes any sense. Uh, even, if, even if monetarily it's fine, even if the equipment, you know, it will be good, I think the only way that happens if there is if there isn't a works alternative and I would not be surprised if KTM has yet another run at Miller, having been interested for a bit. So if there's no other options, then yeah. If there are other options, then I think just for reputation's sake and whatnot, Jack's a smart guy, but he wants to be champion, and you don't get closer to being champion by accepting a demotion from a work seat to a satellite seat. So we obviously we know that KTM made a big bid for him last time round two years ago, and you know we will come to KTM um shortly. But I think Jack's problem this time round is that he left it too late. He should have made the move back then, because now the grid is just too stacked. There's I don't think there's a way in at KTM for him anymore because of well for, we'll for get the to same it. We'll reason get to, yeah we'll get to yeah. it. But for this in a nutshell, for the same reason that I don't think there's a way into Ducati for Mir. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because of the backlog of talent, essentially. Well, let's let's divert via KTM for a, for a moment then because yeah, they've got they've got four very highly rated young riders in this lineup now. 
but is that necessarily the package that's going to work for them given how lost they got last season? Do they need to be looking at having some experience from somewhere else? The the problem is, where do you put your experience? Miguel Oliveira is, I think, probably going to end up staying there um, because basically because he has no other options. Maybe Honda will make a bid for him. Maybe Yamaha will make a bid for him if they lose Quartararo, but that's a massive if. So I, I can't really see that happening, in which case KTM remains his best option. On the other side of the garage, Brad Binder is signed on a you know, ridiculous deal that's going to keep him there forever and ever and ever. And then in, in, in the junior team, you've got Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez. They are going to do, they've already shown the lengths they're going to go to to keep Fernandez. Like they've moved people out of teams. They've sacked riders to give his little brother a Moto3 seat. They've done all sorts to try and keep him already. And that, that if he has a decent rookie season, that's going to get worse, not better. And then, you know, there's this sort of looming threat over the whole thing. They've got to find a place for Pedro Acosta because they've got to keep Pedro Acosta. It's as simple as that. They, you know, they the entire purpose of the KTM Moto2 team is because they lost Mark Marquez after his 125 days because they had nowhere to put him to bridge him up. They, they learned a really, you know, the amount of times that KTM management has referred back to that suggests that that is still something that they are very, very bitter about. Uh, and I just can't see how they're going to try and, you know, they're going to do anything to jeopardize the next Mark Marquez. Um, so while there is an argument that they need an experienced set of hands, I, I don't see where they're going to put it. And, and let's remember, they had an experienced set of hands. They didn't use them properly and they sacrificed them to bring up more youth talent. And now he's out finishing second in today's stage at Dakar. Now you've dated the recording. Now the the magic is ruined. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's gonna finish. He's gonna finish second for okay, the rest of the enough. week. Yeah, every day. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I agree, but um, you say Miguel has nowhere else to go. That's that's probably true. But I think for Miguel to shore up his works, MotoGP future, he needs to show early in twenty twenty two that whatever was going on at the end of 2021 is over and done with that he will regain his not even like at some points in MotoGP in the past couple of years Miguel Hovera has been the best rider on the grid he doesn't have to be that consistently but he has to be up there or thereabout consistently and it's a question of how easy he'll find to get back into into that groove if he doesn't then KTM could very well look elsewhere um and I know, I think your suggestion why they can't get Jack Miller is that in that case, Raul Fernandez would step right up with, with Brad Bender, which makes sense. But I don't know. It's a it's a tough one. Would they sacrifice Oliveira to get Fernandez up so as to avoid Fernandez falling into the clutches of Yamaha? If they do, then well, that solves that. But if they don't, again, I think I see Jack Miller as a very, very sensible choice. And it's it, it's harsh not to bring up Remy Gardner at all in this, but I don't I don't see Remy as a worst KTM rider anytime soon, just on on past record. But obviously he was good in his first test, so anything's possible there too. We just we just never know how how the rookies are going to go on those big bikes. So obviously he has a chance as well, but he's a longer shot just going on on past record. 
another thing that obviously we're going to come to later in the pod, but that I think factors into all of this is the state of play at the Satellite Yamaha team, because that is the place that Fernandez will go if he's not going to be a, a you know a factory KTM rider essentially. Um, but I I think yeah if if he has a good start to the season and Oliveira isn't delivering then yeah I can I can see that being the the solution essentially because that solves all of KTM's problems. They keep Fernandez. Fernandez is happy because he's a factory rider. He is you know in this hypothetical faster than Oliveira or showing more potential than Oliveira, and then they've got a place to put Pedro Acosta. So it works out for everyone. Then you, if you're Yamaha, then you'd probably put Oliveira or try to put Oliveira in your satellite team. Actually, you try yeah. to put Oliveira into the satellite, telling team. him yeah. also yeah, that yeah, if you if you perform super well, remember Franco Morbidelli's contract runs quite unusually till the end of 2023. Yeah. So there might be a spot there for for 24. Yeah. So that kind of solves it for. I was going to ask how urgently KTM needs to find a MotoGP place for Acosta. Do you think that absolutely has to be next year or can they keep on, on the hook for another year? I think it has to be next year. I I think that obviously it's going to take a few races to see what he can do in Moto2. But from what I've already seen, I was at the first test, the, the first outing on the Moto2 bike and he just, he looked more comfortable on it than he did in the Moto3 bike. He looked so ready to go well in that class. Um, and I, I think... What we didn't really see from him this year too much, he is obviously really, really good at that whole Moto3 knife fighting, able to battle, able to do, you know, put the bike where he wants to put it. But the most impressive performances of the year were the, you know, the pit lane start. So he has the ability to run his own lap times, to do all the things that make you a fast Moto2 rider, you know, for, for much the same way that we saw um, Brad Bender. The other guy to have won from the back in Moto3 and then went to Moto2 and clicked right away in his rookie season. I I wouldn't be at all surprised if Acosta does a, a Fernandez this season. And and in that case, then, yeah, they have to be looking at a MotoGP seat for him because if they don't, others will. And he's one of those names that other teams will sacrifice people that right now we think is a more sure thing. You know, we talked about um, Suzuki taking Kanet if they need to find someone. But if Acosta's on the market, you have to make a pitch. So, you know, the, it opens up all of those doors if, if KTM aren't securing him reasonably early on. And the, the problem is the, the Mir precedent. Mir didn't exactly even gel fantastically with Moto2 his first season, but he, he was already a MotoGP rider. For, for most of his Moto2 season, he already knew he was stepping up. And it paid off amazingly. So if you have enough kudos behind you to bypass Moto2, you do it. Suzuki have done it three times. They've taken guys who weren't exactly dominating in Moto2 and three times they've moved them up to MotoGP and three times it's been the right call. They did it with Vinales, they did it with Renz, they did it with Mir. So you don't need to win your first three Moto3 or Moto2 races ever to, to you know, get put on the fast track and for it to work out. And I guess the other KTM question, I was going to ask what, how much can they force Fernandez to stay if he doesn't want to? But I thought back to the last few months and realized the lengths they've already gone to, to achieve that. So that I could see him actually being welded to the bike in some, in some way, but on, on a, on a serious note, 
how what is that relationship actually like after everything that's happened in in recent months do, do they go into his rookie season with him really not wanting to be there or will that all be forgotten when the season starts i think it will all be forgotten when the season starts um uh, because the beef the good thing about the way the ktm have managed it is that all of the beef are with ktm management but he now doesn't work for ktm management anymore he works for Hervé Pontrol. And I think adding that layer in will will just deflect enough. Hervey's team will make him feel super welcome. It'll be laughs and jokes and and you know all of the stupid stuff that goes on in that garage because it's still essentially a family team. Um, they'll they'll make it all a really good environment. He's got Remy on the other side of the garage, who, from what we saw last year, is just the right amount of friend slash bitter bitter opponent that you want in a teammate to drive each other along nicely um and if if the results come it'll all be good but then i guess that all goes back to what sort of bike they're going to bring doesn't it if the bike is actually good easy problem solved if the bike's a dog again we'll see yeah that was, that was going to be my exact same point if you have three of your four rc16s exiting in, in q1 like usually was the case last year it's last year now wow 2021 uh yeah if if that's the case then i don't see why a works ride would be a massive sweetener if the because they wouldn't promote him on a one-year deal they'd want a long-term commitment from raul surely if they if they put him into the factory seat uh yeah i think i think it depends on the on the level of the of the equipment tech three is a nice place to be but it's a nice place to be when you're not 18th and 19th and and arguably they're the only factory in that position where the level of equipment will decide the lineup for next year more than anyone else. I think everything else we know kind of where they are. Um it may be Suzuki, but it sounds promising. Maybe Yamaha, but it sounds promising, maybe Honda, but it sounds present promising. The most black and white question in, in any of the six manufacturers is KTM. If the bike is good, X happens. If the bike is not good, Y happens. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think the 2021 season left such a massive question mark over what KTM really was and where that bizarre loss of former had actually come from. That Yeah, so it, it's a handy position for them to have their own pool of talent because nobody else realistically is looking at KTM going, yeah, that's a definite surefire bet for 2023 right now. So let's commit then. So KTM factory lineup next year. Obviously, Brad Bender's still there. Who's on the second bike? Ah, it's terrible because we're going to have different answers. And it's going to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll make... I'm going to go Jack Miller. That's, <laughs> you know. I, I'm going to say Miguel Oliveira. All right. So put in Raul Fernandez then. <laughs> yeah. Split the difference. <laughs> I'm having I'm having casting vote and going Oliveira. So, and then we're going to. Let's commit to Tech 3. So Remy only gets one year because they need to get Acosta in? No, I think, I think Remy and Acosta. I think Remy sticks. And Fernandez yeah. wanders off. Yeah. Okay. Let's add that to this excellent spreadsheet that you can't see and the listeners can't either. So a nice visual aid <laughs> for the podcast. Visual aids are always good in podcasts. <laughs> so we'll, we'll follow Fernandez back up to Yamaha for a second then in that, in, in that case. Now, Morbidelli's contract, is that... F- through next year at present as well yeah end of 23 uh yes is there a question mark over that around his fitness in any way or is that fairly fairly solid i I think his fitness kind of his improvements all season tracked with what we expected 
they knew that he was going for a big surgery and it was going to take a long, long time. Um, so I, I, I'd imagine, you know, they, they expected exactly what they got. He improved slowly towards the end of the year as things got better. I'm sure he's had probably one of the busiest winters of any MotoGP rider getting the knee back to where it needs to be. And I don't see him as someone that has lost any form, just isn't able to use the form, that the talent that is there. So, no, I, I don't think there's a question mark about his his long-term capabilities. I don't know if he'll ever have a season as good as 2020 again, because I think that that was a bit of a fluke season for all sorts of reasons, uh, and that he really shone and made the most out of a lot of chaos. But I, I think he's still, you know, if if you said, if you asked me now where he's going to finish the next two seasons, I'd say top six championship, you know, fairly Fairly sure bet, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, there's probably clauses in his contract to ensure that he does actually get back to to proper fitness. Uh, and you can never tell 100%, but looking at the, the end of last year, what was encouraging was that the single lap pace was already there. It was already there. He was already fast on over one lap. And that sort of resulted in him being the guy who basically lost the most positions compared to where he started uh, through the season. I don't have the exact data, but he, he was falling like a rock in every single race. But that was that was a question of, of fitness and longevity, and you can work on that. Clearly, in philosophical terms, there's nothing that's preventing him from riding the bike the right way, just not for very long. And that's that seems a lot more fixable to me. And if if he's back to... if the race pace, the longevity is back in, in, in 22, then he's fine again. There's no reason to look anywhere else because the one lap pace, it, Fabio was not being challenged like that in terms of one lap pace for, for a while. I mean, on Maverick's good days, I guess, but Frankie was reliably there or thereabout when it came to single lap speed towards the end of the season, just couldn't do it in over many, many laps. Uh, And the, the important thing about how, long the recovery took is that he's actually done the thing that most MotoGP riders don't do. He's taken the painful decision to take the long-term recovery approach rather than always having the knee injury niggle hanging over him for the next four or five seasons or until he retires. You know, it's like Mark Marquez and shoulders. Look, look how often his shoulder popped out and he put it back in and then it popped out and he put it back in and it was never strong. And there was always question marks because he needed to take the tough decision to go and get the big surgery. So the fact that Morbidelli was brave enough to do that mid-season, to me, that that is a very important step that he's done, and it it sort of hints at a good long-term physical recovery. But also it was easier to do that in his position. If Marcus did that, he would have sacrificed one yeah, of his of titles, course. I think. So <laughs> Yeah, of course. But but it was the sensible thing, and, and it, it will stand him in good stead for the future. So I think that's settled where we're putting all the main factory team lineups for 2023, apart from Freddie, which we'll get to in a second. So let's rattle through some satellites now. I'm going to have the casting vote and say Jack Miller does accept a return to Pramac. Um, based on how supportive he was about being a kind of number two to Pecco at the end, at the end of last year, I, I think pragmatically he'll be able to see the logic in that choice, particularly if KTM does look wobbly at the start of the year. So the rest of the Ducati ladder, um, what do they do with Bastianini? So there's there's your problem. You've put in Jack at Primac, which means they don't meet, need Zarco at Primac anymore, 
which means an Abastianini goes to Pramac, I think. I don't I don't really see I'd vote for that. I don't really see how Pramac would have Miller and Zarco. That's doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. But I can absolutely see Zarco heading up Ducati's World Superbike effort. Ooh. <laughs> Which then becomes the you know it's a it's a it's a nice solution, isn't it? It's it's sort of elegant in its effectiveness. Remember the last time you talked about Zarco and Superbikes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure if we need to cut that. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think it would be very different terms this time around where he to seriously consider a superbike offer because you know at the end of the day he's he's going to be one of the oldest riders on the grid at the end of next year. He is arguably never going to be a factory MotoGP rider at this point again. He's he's kind of hit, you know, Pramac, I think, is the ceiling of his career now. Um, but he could go to World Superbikes for Ducati. He could be the factory rider. He could be the number one. He could have a genuine shout at multiple world championships. And he'd probably get paid double what he's getting paid right now. So I think it, it's it would be a it would be almost a chance to have a second career because otherwise he'll do two more years in MotoGP as a satellite rider and then probably retire. Whereas he could go to Ducati and World Superbikes do what Max Biagi did and win four championships. I guess as well as an extent to which his Pramac move has now served its purpose. It's shown he's not a Ducati works option long-term. And if, if Miller does stay in a Ducati fold, you don't need Zarco in that kind of useful, experienced person role further down the lineup. Exactly. And I'd argue that Miller is a better development yeah. writer than Zarco. Yeah. That is quite possibly a fair point looking at the trajectory of, of how their careers have gone, definitely. So VR46, I I can't see much movement there in the in the short in the short to medium term from what they're doing this year with definitely with Marini no. and, and 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 Bears as well. So No. Vietti would have to win the title, I think, to, to force yeah. any sort of change. Vietti's good, but I don't think he's winning the title. He's 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 good, um, but I don't think he's good enough to demote either of those two right now. Um, any guesses for what Grassini might have on its bikes to, in the second year of this project? Yeah, so Digia had a really good test. So on the basis of that and, and that alone, I say he stays. <laughs> but he just, he just had a really good test. He clearly likes the bike. He loves yeah. the team. The team, I think, is very, very fond of him. He's the the biggest Grishini legacy rider around in, in, in a certain sense. Like he's really been with the team for a, for a fair amount of time. Yeah. So, and and they clearly fancy him. So I see no reason to change there unless his rookie season goes real bad, which again, the test suggested it will not. He likes that bike. Uh, I think that they'll, they'll look down their grid um, for who they, they want to promote into there. They've, they've got young riders, they've got talent down the line and um, that that has been kind of the point of the whole project um, to to create a full feeder system, to create a full feeder system in collaboration with Ducati. So it'll be interesting to see if there's over the course of next year, if Ducati, say, start influencing who ends up in the Grissini Moto2 team or maybe even the Moto3 team, if we look that, you know, um, if that returns. Um, but I, I'd be... I wouldn't be terribly surprised if they, um, you know, if their first choices for who they want to promote is some of the guys that they have. You know, I know he's a MotoGP rookie or Moto2 rookie this year, but 
Salak has a bit of potential. Maybe someone like that could end up getting parachuted in there. If I were far to just pick a, a rider at random who I think we probably won't be able to fit into any of the other holes, but who I think will have a good enough season, Gusto Fernandez. Gusto Fernandez is pretty good. So exactly. he'll have a good yeah. bike at his disposal this year. He might finish, might well finish top three in the championship. If I'm Ducati, I, I take a punt. There's there's also the um the kind of left field option of Grissini are probably the most I don't want to say financially at risk. Uh they have the lowest funding of any team in the MotoGP grid at the minute, probably. And there are riders that Dorna will want to promote from Moto Two soon that they might get a little bit of helping hand to take. Um, you know, there are now three Americans in Moto Two, all Dorna back. That hasn't happened by accident. If if one of them has a really good season, if Joe Roberts can find his form again, or if Sean Dillon Kelly comes in and looks really strong, there will be you know financial strings pulled in the background to push one of them forward. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of options there that maybe aren't necessarily as obvious as you know the Canets or the Aguras or or something like that. But yeah, I I I would be surprised if they end up with someone who's already in MotoGP. So speaking of Moto Two graduates, and you just mentioned Agura again as well. We've we've written a few times that Takanakigami is going into last chance territory in the Honda lineup. So LCR having at least one fresh rider next year. I'll let you go first on on this one, Val. Yeah, if, if nobody else poaches Agura, no reason to wait really for Honda. Might as well. It's not that Nakagami has been bad. It's just that you want something to strive towards, and I don't think. I don't think there's a particularly good chance that Taka will ever be a Honda factory rider. So you might as well swap him out with a newer version that you can see one day in that factory seat. No offense to Taka, who's been not only good, but I think a lot better than I expected by his Moto2 record. I think he's been a, a really decent MotoGP rider, but it's only so many years you get off of that. So yeah, I think Ogura comes in for, for Taka. Th- that makes sense. Completely, and the, um, and the other ride, um, yeah. Alex Marquez. I because even if even if Alex doesn't have a really good career, you you want to keep Mark happy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, 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 something drastic would have to change in uh-huh. Honda's whole approach to the world for Alex Marquez to be at risk, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, and so also, the... you know what? He is yeah. a good rider. So I think yeah. if they give him if they give him enough time, there's going to yeah. be something there. Absolutely, there's think. a little bit of the Luca Marini about him, where time is his friend, um, and it it will you know he the guy put a Repsol Honda on the podium twice in a rookie season. There is talent there, and, and at the end of the day, you, maybe in in Repsol Honda, you can't get away with being someone who only finishes in the podium twice in a year, but at LCR Honda, you absolutely can. So you know, Cal Crutchlow was a podium finisher two or three times a season, and they loved him. So the one manufacturer we haven't visited yet is Aprilia. Now, Vinales is just starting a whole new project there. Um, predicting the long term with Maverick Vinales has proved to be quite an adventure recently. So how do you see that one going? Oh, he's going to win the Dakar next year. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> <That's annoying. laughs> I, I genuinely I can't see any change. Uh, I think that Maverick Maverick has found his place um, and sounds super happy with it and is super excited to be building his own bike and to be in a place where 
They give him a cuddle when he has a good day and shout at him when he has a bad day rather than just nod politely at him on every day. Um, and on the other side of the garage, I think Aleish has two more years in him. Aleish, um, if you have a look at some of the stuff he's been posting on Instagram over the last few days, <laughs> looks like the fittest man I've ever seen, let alone the fittest man in MotoGP. You don't do that because you just like cycling. I don't, I don't, I know he loves cycling, but the amount of training and effort that he's putting in right now, I, I don't, that doesn't look to me like someone preparing for their last season. So did we end up with Paul off the grid then? Well, this is, this is where we're heading at, at the moment. So the team we, the team we haven't covered yet is the satellite Yamaha team. And given everything that's happened around that team in the last six months, my prediction was going to be Sete Gibernau and Romano Fanati. But, uh, <laughs> but we, we've, put, we've put Ralph Fernandez there now. So, what, is that where we place our current old man out, Paul Espargaro? No. I, I'm not entirely sure who's going to be running that team, let alone right? Well, indeed, it. yeah. No, I think I think there's an obvious choice, uh, top rack. So, yeah. 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 I, I don't really see any other scenario, but top rack being in that, whatever that seat is called, I think top rack will yeah. be in that seat in 23. Uh, not really even like a ton to discuss there, is there? I mean, he's done... He's giant killed in World Superbikes. He's ended the reign of terror of Jonathan Ray. That's that's no small feat. Bautista couldn't do it. Redding couldn't do it. Uh, nope. Top Rack Rath Gatlioglu has done it, and I think he's going to be rewarded with a MotoGP ride that's going to be confirmed, I imagine, fairly swiftly in the year. Just a hunch, but it, it makes too much sense. Um, yeah. I, and I know people within... The Dobby camp, who you know, are expecting Dobby to have one more season. That's it. So we, we actually go from Yamaha being in this mess where its satellite team almost didn't exist to having one of the potentially one of the best up and coming rider lineups in reserve if they've got Top Rack and and, and Ralph Fernandez in the fold next year in in this scenario, which is not great news for Morbidelli long term, is it? But it does, does show quite good planning by Yamaha for it, if it gets to this point. Yeah, but it, I don't even think it shows good planning. I think it shows that the M1 is a bike that any rookie will want. The M1 has turned people into MotoGP superstars. The M1 has helped Fabio Quartararo completely turn his career around. It is the bike you want to make your MotoGP debut on. I, it's why, it's probably why Ralph Fernandez's head has been turned a bit. Because it's, you know, he knows that on the M1, he can be there right away. He can be, like, top five in his third race or something. He can start terrifying the MotoGP grid instantly. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it even takes any particular long-term planning for Yamaha. It's just when you have a bike that people can learn pretty quickly, it's always good. Nobody has to waste any time in that learning pattern. And everybody wants to get where they want to be very, very quickly. Whether you're Raul Fernandez, whether you're Pedro Acosta, whether you're Mir, whether you're Quartararo, you want to be fighting for the championship as soon as possible because because you're young and that's that's how young people are. They want to be where they want where they see themselves. They're not going to wait for five or six years, and the M1 is is always a great path. So I think we have a complete grid. Let's let's count it down in, in reverse manufacturer order. So Aprilia keeps hold of Maverick Vinales and Alicia Spargaro. KTM has uh, Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira still on its factory bikes. And Tech 3 is Pedro Costa, Remy Gardner. Honda, you've got uh, Agura and Alex Marquez on the LCR bikes. 
Mark Marquez and the, the superstar move of our silly season, Mir, as his teammate. Suzuki, Rins, and Canet. And then Yamaha, whatever the, the second team is called by then, is Fernandez and Toprak. Works team, Quattararo, Morbidelli still. And then the, the third of the grid taken up by Ducatis. We've placed works team is Banyaya and Jorge Martin. Pramac is Miller and Bastianini. VR46 is still Bez and Marini. And Grassini is Digia and whoever is most useful to Dorna at that point to occupy that second bike. Yeah. Uh... That seems pretty fair to me yeah it seems plausible it's not going to happen that way because the chances are astronomically low that we've gotten yeah, every well, single course. one of these correct but that that creates a feature for this time next year yeah. so that that's, is, that's brilliant <laughs> oh it's got the, the point of this on. whole exercise as, as usual i think I, I don't think paul is done so that's that's the one sort of well this yeah, yeah this is this is an interesting question isn't it how how he is somebody who, after his form at Honda, you wonder where he fits back into the rest of the lineup if he loses that place. Yeah, which I, I I don't think there's a guarantee that he loses that place, but let's assume that he doesn't take enough of a step forward and lose that place. And lose that place. Uh, Paul at KTM makes a fair bit of sense to me, just coming back into the fold. He he loved it there. They I think they're still pretty fond of him. Um, I know there's the youth backlog and stuff like that, and obviously you'd rather look to the future, but... If KTM has another similar season, you would at least think about bringing back the guy who oversaw your rise up the up the MotoGP ladder. And the other option is Aleish retires to go do biking and cedes his ride to to Paul and Aprilia. The the one thing to remember is that there will be people. You know, whenever the the musical chairs let finishes, there will be established veterans left without a seat because MotoGP is obsessed with youth. Add add a an, an extra. Someone will get add an out. extra row. New Kawasaki works team, Paul and Dovey. There we go. We've done the, the best MotoGP grid imaginable. <laughs> oh my god! Can you imagine? Can you imagine how angry that would make Jonathan oh. Ray? <laughs> oh, wow. wow, that's a lovely possibility. I was really mean to Jonathan Ray for a second there. You said that's a lovely possibility, as if <laughs> as if as if that related to, to Jonathan I, Ray missing out. I I, yeah. I, I meant the yeah. return of Kawasaki. That's uh, that, along with Ioda. It's the mark I, I most want back on the grid. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. So thank you very much. I uh, hope you've enjoyed our first, effectively our first podcast of 2023 season in in MotoGP. Um, keep reading the race. Dot com. Don't forget the hyphen. Um, as Simon hinted, I sent him a massive email of commissions first thing this morning. So there's an awful lot of MotoGP content coming up between now and the start of preseason testing. Uh, obviously, there's plenty of F1, Formula E, IndyCar content as well. And then our sister podcasts, uh, Bring Back V10s, has restarted for anyone pining for mid-90s Formula 1. Uh, I think I'm back again next week as Toby's still in the desert. So thanks for listening and see you then.